Hey everybody, welcome to the show. A little bit of a rearranging. I think I teased last week at the end that I was, or on, on the end of the last episode, that this week was going to be with uh, kind of a goofier one with with Scott Barry Kaufman, um, and uh, he, he's the author of a uh, goofy, just like we we were. Uh, he he uh, writes awesome books, but goofy in that we were super playful and had a bunch of laughs. But anyway, he he wrote a book, uh, Transcend: The New Science of Self Actualization, all about kind of rethinking Maslow's hierarchy of needs in a modern world with the science that has advanced since that time. And so that's actually going to be next week now. Been a lot of moving pieces with a bunch of different projects. I won't get all into it. I'll talk a bunch at the end because I have a bunch of uh, things that I've been releasing this month, including my new podcast, Mind Under Matter, with Ramin Nazer, who's joining us in this episode for kind of a little bit of a role reversal episode with uh, with return guest C. Scott uh, C. Sean Green, and uh, talking all about um, we're going to be blending kind of the idea of different cognitive biases and applying them to the world of comedy. I think you're really going to enjoy this episode quite a bit. And uh, I, I wanted to, at the end of the episode, talk about a few of the things that I have going on. But one thing that I wanted to mention was that if you've if you've seen some of like last year, we really started getting the scheduling of the show dialed in um, and a lot more consistent. And this month, it's been uh, just slightly off because of starting up the new show and rearranging some things. We're now doing here we are is dropping every Wednesday now. So you can count on it every Wednesday. Have Count on it. Uh, you know, we're going to miss some here and there and make up for it in double week episodes. But you can typically count on it every single Wednesday. And, uh, and so this is at least the working schedule that we're playing around with. Uh, and Mind Under Matter is going to be every mon- Monday uh, with Ramin and I. And then every Friday... Uh, there's a special Mind Under Matter Patreon bonus show called Mind Under Art that um, that we're doing, um, and so we're kind of spacing things out um, for editing's sake and and allowing uh, more post production time and that sort of thing, and adding some other stuff to um, to my Patreon. Um, uh, like I, I just released my, my good trip, uh, the only ever recording of that, uh, that came out that's on there. Speaking of which I did my first Reddit AMA, we rescheduled, uh, me and Pete's, uh, AMA, which we talked about in his episode, but the, uh, uh, we, we did, a. AMA for Psychonautics. It went really, really well. It was the most popular AMA of the day, uh, top ten of the week or something. I, I didn't look. It kept on. It kept on climbing um, over the following days. But it was it was really cool. So if you want to go and check that out, maybe I'll try to find a put a link to it um, somewhere. But if you go into Reddit AMA and or Google my name on there or whatever, it should pop right up. New new to Reddit and uh, yeah, just wanted to fill you in on the on the new schedule and just let you know that 
if you've been liking the things that I've been putting out of it, or if you've been following me on Instagram and seeing some of the new stuff that we've been announcing, that is nothing. I haven't, my, my assistants had a couple uh, weeks off for vacation. Uh, we're, we're getting a few things clicking into place still, and there's going to be tons of more awesome things uh, coming your way really soon. Um, so I'm super excited. And so just wanted to let you guys know that and enjoy today's episode. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. I have a very unique special episode for you guys today we have two guests and and we're also turning the tables a little bit so i have uh one my very good friend uh ramin nazer who we have uh at the time you're hearing this uh we uh, have launched our podcast mind under matter which you can check out mindundermatterpodcast.com and you can hear us it's kind of um ramin and i have been friends for a very long time and have big fun philosophical conversations about work and motivation and comedy business and all that sort of thing regularly we started recording them for you guys the listener if you aren't familiar with ramin's artwork check it out at raminnazer.com uh he's blowing up on instagram and he's uh he's fantastic and he's joining me today because i am my uh my academic guest for today is return guest Sean Green at from the University of Wisconsin Madison who is uh Assistant Professor of Psychology, right, Sean? Was so associate now. I think the first time I did it, I hadn't been promoted. So, ah, <laughs> nice, Associate Professor. And your kind of research areas are cognition and cognitive neuroscience and perception. But you listeners might remember you as the video game uh, guy. Can you can you give people that haven't heard you on the show before just a little bit of your spiel? Yeah, sure. Um, so the research that my lab focuses on is how we can improve human cognitive function and perceptual function. So are there types of dedicated training that people can do um, that will make them see better, you know, think more quickly, make faster decisions? And so one of the types of training that my lab utilizes are playing various very fast-paced video games. Um, these put a lot of load on the perceptual and cognitive systems, and um, we've seen lots of positive impact in the realm of perception and cognition from playing those types of games. Are these custom-made games, or uh, you like pull up Super Meat Boy or something? Uh, so we uh, <laughs> um, both. Um, you know, the nice thing about custom games is that they're well controlled and so good for science in that way, but they're often just less good than commercial games. So lots of our research. You know, literally has people play Overwatch or, you know, uh, first person shooters like Team Fortress Classic was actually my my PhD thesis. Um, you know, we've used Call of Duty, Medal of Honor, you know, real commercial games. And cool. you're, you're an actual developer, too, right? 
I am not a developer. Um, funnily, there's a there's a well known developer named Sean Seagreen. Um, is that what it is? That's correct. I was like, yes. So he was one. Of, I believe one of the developers for Doom. Um, <laughs> and the original. Like when, you're, when your name's Dennis, you're very likely to become a dentist. <laughs> is yeah. that like the sort of situation? Going? I think you know both. You know me, C. Sean Green, and Sean C. Green are probably just trying to not be confused by the baseball player. Um, you know so. Um, but yeah, someone sent me, um, you know, uh, if you search for Sean Seagreen now, you get this weird amalgamation of us both. You get his bio in my face. Um, so I don't know, yeah, if, he, I don't know yeah. if he gets asked to do interviews about cognitive neuroscience, but I do get asked to give interviews about Doom. Um, <laughs> you guys have to collaborate one day, like when uh, the Will Ferrell and the Red Hot Chili Peppers drummer had to have a drum off because they look similar. First off, what are they paying for these Doom gigs? I mean, I'm sure you could wing it. You know, it's like, oh, yeah. So there's one very particular, you know, because <laughs> um, I thought that they were interested in my research because it uses first-person shooters like Doom. And then the first question is, so when you were making Doom, I'm like... <laughs> Oh, when I was making Doom, I don't think I can wing this. Oh, um, uh, that's so, uh, this is oh, you're thinking of the other Sean Green. <laughs> <laughs> this is I actually had before we get into this. I'm on Instagram. My the the producer of my documentary Psychonautics: A Comics Exploration of Psychedelics. His name's Matt Schuler. Um, there's a Matt Schuler that um, follows me on all of the social medias and is like into comedy and stuff. My Matt Schuler is like makes comedy specials and stuff like that. And so I just I never look at social media much. I just assumed it was him. Like I would see Matt Schuler likes your post or whatever. Assumed it was him. One day we were like writing back and forth uh, during um, during COVID, and he's like saying like some uh, we're we're like making fun of people's response to COVID or whatever. It was like all the same sort of stuff that I'd be saying with my Matt Schuler. And then I was like, "Hey, do you want to just like video chat right now?" <laughs> And he's like, uh, you know what? Yeah, I was in bed with my lady, but let me get out of bed, grab a beer. And then, he like, and then he video chats me on Instagram. And it was one of those things where like your brain doesn't understand what's happening for a minute. So I was like, did Matt? grow hair or start wearing a wig and uh, did you let him in on it or did you just pretend that you wanted no, to talk to I, a normal I, guy he, he, it, my face was enough he was like i'm a different person than you thought i was aren't i <laughs> <laughs> um so uh anyway great catching up fun anecdotes aside let's get into the brass tacks of what this episode's about so sean reached out to me and he was like, "Hey, could you come in and uh, be the like a guest speaker or something in my in my class? I've I've been teaching a uh, psychology what is psychology one hundred and one, Sean? Or yep, introduction to psychology. And I've been you know we've been learning a bunch about cognitive biases. I've been having different people from different fields come in and kind of I, I think about what cognitive biases might apply to their fields and then asking." Uh, them, the people that actually do this stuff, uh, 
how how much uh, how in line my idea of these things is, and and uh, speak a little more to uh, you know enlighten us on the on these types of uh, the psychology of their job uh, essentially. How is that as an explanation? So yeah, I think far, that's great. So you know, um, my you know my goal is that you know I don't want my students to come away thinking that psychology is all you know, Pavlov's dog and these very kind of abstract, non-real world, you know, it's like psychology is all around us. So the things that they learn about as heirs of memory show up in lots of jobs, like for instance, comedy. So, so we aren't going to be talking about video games uh, today like we normally would. Normally no. I'd be asking, I know Ramin's so upset. Normally I'd be asking Sean a bunch of questions. Instead, Sean's going to be asking us two comedians questions um, based on a number of different uh, 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 psychology concepts. So, uh, so yeah, so let's, let's get into it, Sean. Uh, uh, how do you want to start? Sure. Um, I mean, why don't we start with, with memory biases? Um, so kind of a, a whole section of my class talks about the fact that people's memories are not nearly as accurate as they believe them to be. Um, there's lots of very characteristic errors that we make with regard to our memories. So one of these kind of broadly speaking are called misattribution errors. Um, they're when you don't recall the origin of a memory. Um, so for instance, maybe you remember meeting a person and you think it was at a party, but actually you'd seen them in a class or something like that. And so there's one subtype that's called cryptomnesia, um, but colloquially called unintentional plagiarism. Basically, it's as it sounds. You think you came up with an idea, but actually you had heard it somewhere in the past. You don't have any recollection. That's where it came from. And so obviously as comedians, you spend lots of time listening to other comedians tell jokes um, and, you know, stealing jokes is a big issue I know in comedy. Um, so can you think of situations where this error has been made? Are there ways that you try to guard against it? Um, you know, how do I know that I came up with this and it wasn't a bit that I saw 15 years ago? I mean, normally... Um a Google search is like one level of defense. I know it's not everything because that joke might not be recorded already by someone. It might not have been transcribed somewhere. Kind of asking around if it seems like a very obvious one is a good go-to move. And it, it reminds me of this uh, old Louis C.K. bit where he would tell a story and it's like, you ever tell a story that happened to someone else as yourself and then he, he does that and then eventually he tells it to the person he stole it from and then the person says, that doesn't, that didn't happen to you, that happened to me. And then he's mm -hmm. like, oh, I, yeah, I guess, I guess it did, huh? And <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, and yeah, there's, and there's a lot of like, uh, you know, Dane Cook comes to mind as there was a whole like, did Dane Cook steal from Louis C.K.? There's always that kind of stuff going on, but then there legitimately is lots of parallel thinking too there's there's situations where where ideas are just like a, a pretty obvious kind of emergent property of the situation you're in if it's your first time doing stand up if, if you if you watch if you watch 50 people do stand up for the first time several of them are going to do a joke comparing it to losing their virginity. All of them. <laughs> Maybe all of them. And it's not that they saw someone else do that. It's just kind of like an obvious association um, to make in that situation. And so it's a little hard of a thing to police sometimes because it's like some a lot of times... You see a comic use 
you say something and then you go up to him and you're like, oh, I have a bit like that. And you, you usually recognize like, oh, we both have this joke. I, I remember like seeing John Doerr and being like, oh, I have a joke similar to that about like people blaming homosexuals for causing hurricanes or whatever. And then they're like, all right, well, we both came up with the same thing. Like, who gets it? Like, well, you already recorded on TV, so that's yours, you know, and we and we sorted out that way. But definitely, um, Ramin and I were just talking about um, something somewhat related, which is I'll, I'll be the, um, you know, I'm the headlining act a lot of times. I'm working, there's a host and there's a feature act. And a feature will have like an interesting kind of, mannerism or way in which they deliver jokes and after five shows i'll find myself inadvertently (laughs) taking on that kind of style a little bit kind of like when people um uh go and visit australia and come back being like (laughs) toese you know we just adapt um Yeah, it happens with negative things, too. Like if someone says like too much or whatever mm -hmm. too much, like you you, or you know what I mean? You know what I mean? You know what I'm saying? Like you start to subconsciously just mimic them. So good habits and bad habits can can rub off on you sometimes. And then there's another thing. I forget what kind of cognitive bias or or what what the psychological term for this would be, but it's very similar and almost the opposite from an audience point of view, which is the audience, the like, you know, less comedy savvy audience of people that like, maybe they've been to one, a couple comedy shows in their life or whatever. They've seen a couple comedians on TV before. They'll often see a comedian and they'll be like, Oh, you know who you reminded me of? Seinfeld. <laughs> it's just because that's the one comedian, that's their like one basis of comparison that they have. So it fluctuates. Like when Daniel Tosh got popular, people would be like, you remind me of Daniel Tosh. Or like, um, uh, like early on, I had like a drier darker uh delivery or whatever people be like you oh you're kind of like a dirty stephen wright or something like that and then (laughs) i get jim gaffigan sometimes as well actually i probably get that one the most we're both from the midwest (laughs) and so then the audience will be like you're just ripping off jim gaffigan (laughs) like no we're both ripping off a midwestern upbringing um yeah so so I mean, okay. so we just steal them is the answer. Yeah. So we I mean, just we just steal it and joke thieves. The, yeah. the, uh, I think the essence is at least getting yourself to a point that uh, you don't remember that you're stealing them. Um, yeah. so, um, it's plausible deniability. Mm-hmm. So another memory bias um, is um, people have a really strong tendency to remember things from, say, the beginning and end of sequences. We call these the primacy and recency effects. So. Like if a drug company is giving a list of side effects, people will tend to remember the stuff that's at the beginning of the list, the stuff that's at the end of the list, and they will forget the stuff in the middle of the list. Um, And so I can imagine for a performer who's giving a show, um, do you kind of structure your show in such a way that the kind of things that are going to stick best with the audience or the things that you want to stick best? So like start strong, end strong kind of phenomena? You nailed it. Yeah. Yeah. 
And I remember <laughs> What's that an Australian accent. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you're you're supposed yeah. to never open with new stuff unless you're you really know what you're doing and you just want to see if something can work as an opening thing. Mm. That's when you'll try it initially. But really, if you're gonna try new material, you sandwich it in the middle or you pepper it throughout the set and you rely on the tried and true throughout. But now that makes me think of with a drug commercial. So you're saying that they put death and diarrhea and depression in the center. And then the first thing is like hair growth and extra energy at the end of the, <laughs> yeah. the list. Cause I'd never really picked up on that. Is that what they do? Um, so, I mean, in some cases, probably it's, it's hard to uh, hide things like death, um, but uh, wherever you put it in the list, but you know, certain things um, that would be at least the um, suggestion from that memory literature is that if you want people to forget stuff, you'd stick it in the middle. Um, it certainly comes up with things like um, auditions, for instance, people who are uh, auditioned early or auditioned late or job interviews, like in the process will be remembered better than the folks in the middle. Um, mm. So, um, you know, I know that's, you know, so there's lots of places that that kind of general phenomena, we remember the early ones, I remember the late ones um, mm. and stuff in the middle just tends to get forgotten. Well, and in addition to that, I think the peak end rule um, seems to come in quite a bit in in comedy, which is, uh, I, I guess you could help me out if you want, Sean. But basically, rather rather than your rather than your brain calculating the like in, entire mass of units of like laughometers that you get through a whole whole show, and and then averaging that out and being like that show was a seven um instead uh, uh the brain tends to overweight kind of those peaks the biggest the best most memorable laugh of the night like when i do my hot pockets routine mm -hmm. and then um and then the the end of the show that big closer um it, and that that's what you'll hear often from people afterwards. You can do, and I have many times struggled for 30, 40 minutes and then was able to just get them that by, by the last like 15 minutes or so, like I'm killing it and like, whew. I'm glad that worked out, but man, <laughs> that first 45 minutes was absolutely brutal. And it's like, it's like complete amnesia. It's like, they don't even remember uh, that the majority of the show just was not well received. And mm. it's, it's amazing actually. And then, and then they, they'll often have their like favorite joke that they'll kind of repeat back to you after the show. Yeah, and so we'll sometimes, um, it sounds a lot like what we might call availability bias, basically things that are uh, more easy to remember are um, viewed as being more likely or more common, um, mm -hmm. you know, and it's often used as why we overestimate the probability of, say, shark attacks, because they're very available in memory. Um, we underestimate the likelihood of, you know, dying from the flu, not particularly available in memory. Um, so yeah, yeah there's picturing cells going in and hijacking other cells <laughs> and like, it, and, and most people are taken off and in, in a hospital somewhere out of sight, out of mind, but there's uh, no theme song <laughs> doo -doo, doo -doo for flu. Yep, so presumably yeah. for the part where you struggle, it's not really forming any memories. And so people aren't remembering that it 
happened, right? You know, they're overemphasizing the parts that they remember that are that are available, unless the whole thing goes up. So, so you just can't be so bad that it's incredibly painful. You just got to be not memorable for for the first <laughs> yep. half. If there's something so bad it's painful, they'll definitely remember that. Yeah. Um, yeah so yeah. Um, you don't want that weighted in there. Um, yeah. So yeah, we could switch topics here. So intro psych, we cover like all of psychology, obviously. Um, and so one big area is social psych. Um, and there's a phenomenon um, called the fundamental attribution error, basically where we're trying to figure out the causes of people's actions. Um, is it because of something inherent to them or is it um, caused by the situation? So classic example might be someone bumps into you on the bus. Are they clumsy? Are they rude? Are they aggressive? Or did the bus driver swerve? Right. Um, and we have to make these inferences to know how to respond. If it's because the bus driver swerved, you know, you're going to respond differently than if it's because it's your friend who bumped you or if it's because they're aggressive. Um, and so people have a really strong tendency to make this error, which is to um, assume that people's actions are caused by things inherent to them, even if they're caused by the situation. So the very classic experiment is one where they had participants read a speech that was either pro or anti-Castro. This is back when Castro was relevant. Um, so you could tell how old the study was. And then they asked the people, how pro or anti-Castro do you think the speechwriter was? Um, and people assumed that well, if they wrote a pro-Castro speech, they're probably pro-Castro. If they wrote an anti-Castro speech, they're probably anti-Castro. And they made that assumption even if the researchers told them that the topic of the speech was assigned by a coin flip. So we flipped a coin. This person got anti-Castro. How anti-Castro do you think they are? Um, and people assume that despite the fact they know it came from the situation, they assume it's still internal. So in the case of comedy, um, I'm, you know, what are the kind of assumptions that people make about you? I'm assuming that things that you say as part of your comedy jokes reflects your, your real feelings. Um, you know, that the reason you're doing this, you know, you're making this joke about this, you know, group is that you're a misogynist or you're a racist or, you know, you really hate this type of people. Um, yeah, and while those may be true, um, that's not the reason that I said the joke. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I think I think comics, especially with the, you know, uh, many of them are, you know, upset about college campuses and cancel culture and this kind of thing. And it, it often gets brought up that like um, Kevin Bacon or whoever can play a pedophile or a rapist on a movie and that's OK. But then if you make a joke, even it's not supporting it in any way, just bringing up the concept of touchy subjects, you get aligned with, oh, you're you're co-signing that you're you're okay with racism murder uh, yeah but for that to be a perfect study you would need kevin bacon to do stand up and see if he could get away <laughs> with the same same thing. it might just be the kevin bacon effect so yeah this is not not to like pat ourselves on the back but but um and, and like uh ramin and i are one of a kind but we're we're peculiar people we we write odd jokes um like either one of us is likely to have like if we go to like a chuckle hut in tallahassee like an audience the audience might be like what in the hell are they talking and and um so we're we're not like as in danger of of like lifting jokes i i often feel like um uh, like if I hear someone else do a thing about dying and then becoming molecules and those molecules bumping into each other in the universe, I'd be like, 
You got that from Ramin Nazer. The reason I bring it up here <laughs> is because the strangest thing happens, which is I'll say a true story and people don't believe it. And then I'll say the most ridiculous thing. And like, I'll tell some time travel joke and they're like, so what was it like to time travel? And then I'll be like, so I went to this, I went to the, like, I'll tell a 12 minute story about like going to the Duck Dynasty musical. And they're like, that wasn't real, was it? Like, you think I just made up that (laughs) 20 minute long story, but then the 10 second time travel (laughs) quip was like, so it's, it's, uh. It, it's strange, but I I can I can see that Sean, and I've also never thought about it before, and it makes me reevaluate the things that I've said in the past. Like, oh, I thought we were just kidding around here. Yeah, and yeah. It's, it's a hard one, right? Like whether people assume that it's because you're a comedian or assume it's because you deeply believe it. You could certainly imagine people making that error. You know, it's. I'm saying I think that's why. Uh, sorry to interrupt. Like, the, no, I, I, th- I think that. Um, oftentimes if a, if a comic is very clean or let's take like Pee Wee Herman, uh, what's his name? Paul Rubens when like back in the eighties or nineties when he was in the, the porn theater and like was, uh, you know, beating off in public and, uh, got in trouble for that. I think it was because he's the child star, Mm -hmm. uh, or, you know, kids show thing. Bob Saget's a good example of this. Oh yeah. When it, when it conflicts with who they are on stage, they get in more trouble than like, let's say Jim Norton is just well-known perv and like, doesn't ever get in trouble because he's already presenting as uh, a deranged person. But if you're very wholesome and then you're caught doing something off stage, then, uh, it's, yeah, like like Doug Stanhope on his last special was talking about how he's like never never been me too and like uh, and and like of all the like uh, uh, you know it's always like the clean cut people or whatever that it ends up happening to or whatever. Um, so yeah, Cosby there's... is the greatest example of that. Oh yeah, every time I see Seinfeld, I'm always just like, "What is that guy hiding?" <laughs> like, you know, he has some weird stuff going on. Uh, <laughs> um, so I think I think he spends too much time with cars and stuff to to make time to for be a any serial killer uh, or something. Yeah, but who knows? Maybe. So I don't know. So stick it in social psych, um, kind of a big topic is, is stereotypes. Um, you know, it's very human to try to put people into a category and then reason from the category. But one thing we tend to do is assume that everyone is kind of the center of the category um, when obviously people vary widely. So I'm wondering, you know, what are some what are some things that people assume about you? What are the stereotypes about comedians or people just assume that they know something about you um, because of the fact that they've stuck you in the comedian bin that that doesn't really work. Oh dear God. <laughs> if you if you joke a little, if you have one joke about psychedelics or about, you know, getting too drunk or something, they assume that you're getting smashed every single night or you're doing psychedelics every single night. You might've never done psychedelics or have only done them, you know, five years ago or something, but because mm-hmm. you're, presenting yourself in this 30 minute to hour set like they imagine that your day-to-day life is the the stuff you just joked about you wake up you do the psychedelics you yell at your aunt you whatever is the 
the thing. Yeah, you've compiled your 10 years of like drinking stories into a 30 minute set. And then afterwards, like, whoa, that guy's crazy. <laughs> like, well, we've all been 30 minutes of crazy in the last 10 years. Yeah. Um, I, one interesting one is people just can't believe how how tall I am when they see me afterwards and and it's but it's the same as like when they see an actor they can't believe how short an actor is people people just assume that when they when they have no way of like measuring you know someone's on stage someone's on a screen or whatever they just assume this is a person of average height you know and so that happens um some of the some of the peskier assumptions people make is that um because you're a comedian um you're going to make fun of them it's like a lot of like spotlight effect kind of stuff so you're at a party and I used to carry a notepad with me everywhere and I still enjoy having a pad to pen notepad, but it's just easier in a social situation to think of a joke. Like, no, I didn't think of a joke about you. Actually, when you were talking, I zoned out, thought about something more interesting, (laughs) thought of a joke about that. And that's what I'm writing down. Yeah. And, And, but if you pull out a notepad, now it's just like, Oh my gosh, this is like the uh, this this like undercover cop or something like that that's like taking our secrets, making fun of uh, uh, like how stupid we're acting right now and <laughs> and they're just going to travel around the country talking about how dumb the thing we said at the party was or whatever and just that's a very very common thing i know i know it's not exactly related to your um what's what's it called the center um but what was it again center uh, center curious it's basically uh once people form stereotypes they uh they assume everyone is too much like the center of the category Mm -hmm. um, but what was the term though what's the term just that I think it's just. Oh, stereoty- I thought it was called like center bias or yeah, something. Just stereotyping. Some it's something that goes along oh. when people have stereotypes. Is they assume everyone is too like the center, um, and that they kind of ignore the fact that uh, even if you can categorize people as comedians, there might be a center, but there's like a lot of variation. Um, yeah, and very also few people. The, also, the the zinging too. They think that you're you're going to keep coming with the. The, the jokes as you're off stage when maybe you'll only make a joke every 20 sentences instead of every like bang, 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 bang. That, yeah, that's, I mean, Ramin's maybe a little more on in real life uh, than that I, I don't know. It's tough to tell, but, but either way, the average audience just like, I, I, I like writing and then I get on stage and my audience is just like the measure of like, oh, did that joke and delivery worked the way that I thought it would? I don't I don't get much from like the glow of the stage and the laughter, the validation. It's just like, okay, that worked the way that I thought it would or it didn't. And then I and then I'm done. And I'm like, okay, now I'm gonna have a drink at the bar. <laughs> like I'll have one with you as well. But I'm a normal person now and people people are just 
people expect you to be like on all the time. There are. It just people. occurred to me. Yeah, you okay? We were about to say the exact same thing. I think how there's people that Jimmy Pardo do, or something. Yeah, they prove that to be true. Sometimes you see someone on stage and they're a very goofy character, and you're like that's a crazy character they're doing. And then you meet them off stage, and you're like, oh my god, he actually is this manic and this. <laughs> Like he is that crazy character. I thought he was amping it up for the stage, but he's actually very troubled and going in and out of <laughs> mood swings in a single sentence. And he's up here, and then by the end of the sentence, he's down here, and you find out that he hangs himself. And you know, three years later. Yeah, yeah. I guess I probably fall in that category. But the Jimmy <laughs> Jimmy Pardo is an example of the always on people that are that are actually do it and do it well, and it's not forced, and it's just who they are. And it's not annoying, but there are there are there are comedians that try to embody that like zip zap. They usually do a lot of like crowd work and stuff. Jimmy like Pardo, that. nice to meet you. Nice, <laughs> nice to meet you. Yeah. So, um, so, so sticking yeah. with stereotypes, um, I mean, obviously, you know, in the history of comedy, I think it's fair to say that lots of comedians have kind of leaned into stereotypes as foundations for their comedy, um, whether it's you know race or gender or sexual orientation or um, religion. Given where we are today, um, you know, you can imagine that there'd be backlash against, you know, using stereotypes as foundation. So have you seen any changes in the last five years with regard to, you know, how that works? Like whether there's awareness of it, whether some people just say, I don't care. Um, well, I think it's, yeah, it's gotten much more sensitive, of course. And any, anything that can be interpreted as offensive, you will at least have some section of people that are calling it out and not okay with it whereas but it but it's interesting because it used to be hack to do like to be too racial or too like gendery or something and then then it, it wasn't offensive though it was hack and then mm -hmm. it became offensive but not so much hacks that makes sense so now it's like edgy so there's yeah. a lot of like <laughs> buckle your seatbelts this is <laughs> There's a lot of like build. There's always a lot of build up with those. So there, there's like, there's kind of two different, um, uh, uh, camps, camps that have like popped up over the last decade or so. And one was like the the big kind of indie um, meltdown comics, um, uh, like everyone is um, like super liberal and talking about comic books and um and you know uh, gay rights and and that Can sort of stuff. Can Republicans just like not? And then there was this big backlash to it which is where all like the virtue signaling stuff came out of and then and now there's like the red pill of like everyone's too soft and you can't <laughs> say any in this cancel culture. And so that's like so then during during COVID, there's like, you know, you can imagine the type of people going out to a live comedy show uh, are are going to be a, a little more toward the right, uh, the right. <laughs> more to the right. <laughs> and so they're going to they're going uh, they're they're easier to pander to in that in that that's the type of type. Uh, so the same type of crowd that falls for the usual like cookie cutter you show up to a comedy club and they're like, okay, here's our, our street that has a funny name. Here's the colors of our sport team. If you say, just say those colors and they'll clap a lot. And if you, 
and here's these these uh, easy checks uh, that you can cross off to get some cheap applause and hooray for the troops. And then those same comics tend to be like, hey, what's this guy? What are you dating a Latin? And, <laughs> and they tend to do like awful crowd. So so I would say that I I would say that it's to me, it feels the same as it's ever been, just like a little more salient on on both sides. Um, but it doesn't it's, feel like the it doesn't feel like the Overton window has expanded. It's or or, or moved. It's like maybe expanded or like what's the Overton high, window high, that that the the like acceptable political discourse oh. shifts toward like one side or another or. Have we talked about how it's it's interesting that you've got the red pill people on one side and you've got the woke people on the other side and both mm-hmm. of them are, you know, it's implying that you have stepped outside of the matrix and they're like kind of opposite, but they both claim to be like, you know, we've got the truth. Yeah. The red pill. So, I mean, I think that I I think that people Either in both of those cases, people are using stereotypes. They're using stereotypes of racist people, and racists are using stereotypes of ethics or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> and um, so I don't know. I I think that it and and like the cancel culture stuff. Ramin and I often say it's like it's not really the thing that happens is like a lot of times those people end up doing better with their career because it's billed as like a whoa this is too edgy and like censorship tape over their mouth and their album cover or whatever you lose some audience and you gain a different uh section of people i guess yeah so i mean i i think that there's i i think stereotypes aren't going away anytime soon but they they, they can be useful tools for building an expectation and then flipping it um for uh for comedians as well because most of what comics are doing is the alien anthropology thing where uh, you're stepping outside of yourself and like okay if this is my first day on earth and i wasn't aware with like these are the colors of the sports team you're supposed to like or whatever how silly would this look and then you kind of comment on that and so there's easy ways to knowing the stereotypes that are on in people's minds, you can lead them down that path and then easily kind of like flip it um, to get that kind of surprise and twist. Also, the the stereotypes are acceptable. I feel like if you are of that, if you're that color, if you're that gender, if you are that religion, then you can kind of bash it. And if it's clear that you are you know in it but if you're doing it to other groups then it gets kind of my uh, jokes making fun of bearded people have gone over a lot better in the last year uh, you grew the beard for the jokes understood (laughs) Um, so actually i mean it's kind of an interesting question for me which is you know um you know you say kind of build up to the stereotypes you know that people have how different are your sets if you're giving it say as part of stand-up science in madison wisconsin there's your audience versus you know you're giving it in a different part of wisconsin um you know I, i've only ever seen sets in madison wisconsin so you know how different are they ramin do you want to take that i mean i have plenty to say on the subject oh yeah i thought that was that was more of a you question for having done more of the stand-up sciences but i'll say for sure you you tweak it as much as you can and this uh, applies to everything whether it's you're doing a corporate 
set where you're not allowed to use curse words, of course, or if you're doing uh, a college and if it's, let's say it's an all girls dorm, like you're maybe going to not do as much of the like stuff that you think would be more male oriented. But at, at the end, you still have to do your set. You're still you. You can't just throw out your your jokes or your persona. But um, yeah, I found with the with doing stand up science sets, like you kind of you you feel like the audience is going to get more of the smarter stuff. Or if you like bring up Terrence McKenna or Alan Watts or Mary Curie, as opposed to bringing it up in Abilene, Texas in a steakhouse show or something, you're probably not going to bring up these characters. You have a bias of like, these people aren't going to know these references. So mm -hmm. you, you kind of feel like you can pretend to be smarter. I used to, so I spent a ton of time on the road and I used to quite stubbornly, uh, I started in Boston and uh, I, my home club was in Harvard square. This is like, like hipster indie club. And, but I did tons of like Elks lodges and stuff too. And I really took a great deal of pride in the first part of my career as being kind of like this hybrid comic. And so I wouldn't deviate too much there was always i could always have a little more fun with the more comedy savvy audiences and push it a little bit more and um but it was always just as fun for me to like figure out a way of making that stuff work in an audience that uh where it was more challenging and then about five years ago i kind of abandoned that idea mm -hmm. too because it was uh, so I I did a special called mating season, which was like my last attempt at that. And that was like, so it was like, Hey, I'm going to talk about evolution in a fun way. Uh, that, so I can like talk about it in Texas and stuff and it will still be palatable. And, and it was fine for live performing, but as a special, it ended up when you're talking about like stereotypes or whatever, or alienating people, it was interesting because it alienated both sides. It had, <laughs> it, it was evo uh, the evolution alienated creationists. And then talking about like biological gender role stuff, alienated, uh, alienated liberals and then, try to please everyone. You please nobody. Yeah. Don't serve warm tea as Peter McGraw would say. And oh, uh, that's a nice little one there. Yeah, and so um, I have since, as as you've seen, Sean started developing these indie shows where I'm like, this is this is for a very specific audience. Now, rather than like, hey, we're at a comedy club, and hopefully some people know Shane Moss, but a lot of people are like, comedy, that sounds fun. Now I'm like, um. All right, this is an indie show, and hopefully some people know Shane Moss, but they're like, oh, a science and comedy show? That's very different. I'll go and see that. And so, of course, it's going to be, um, you know, a very, very different clientele, and that actually allows me to spread my wings, like, um, quite a bit more. Um, Have you guys seen what Fred Armisen has done with, like, uh, that one special called Stand Up for Drummers? And in order to get into the show, they've got like a little snare drum or a practice pad and like they give you two sticks and you have to like demonstrate that you're at least somewhat of a drummer. And they're like, all right, all right, you can come in. And then the jokes are all extremely specific. Like you ever go into Sam Ash and then the guy's sitting there by the toms and blah, blah, and it's just killing it. And he does another one that's uh, for guitarists, but just the... 
the, the psychology so behind you know specialization like if you're selling a glove and if it's an all-purpose glove maybe it might not be seen as special if it's this glove is for just picking tulips and it's the best tulip picking glove in the world and it's it's i've realized like you know i'm i'm trying so hard to be like well, let's see if I can get people to learn something unexpectedly <laughs> during a comedy show. And some people are just tired with work and whatnot. Yeah. And <laughs> and, and it, it, it occurred to me, you know, it was just a blind spot that I had for a while. It, it's, I, I think I think good comics are are pretty self-aware and pretty self-critical and decent at detecting their blind spots and and correcting course and usually look back at everything that they made and they're like gosh i'm so much better now hopefully or as you're telling the joke you're like this might tank even though it didn't tank the last hundred times but strap in gotta yeah. have a thing to do in case oh it worked okay great that means i can keep talking to exactly. yeah there's a little judgmental thing going on as you're supposedly in the present yeah, but it's not, and and for me, it hasn't even been just like, oh, look at how how smart these jokes are. It's just like if if someone wanted to do like Fred uh, uh, a set all about drums or a set all about football or whatever, I think that's terrific if you're a football fan. But if I went to a comedy show and the headliner just talked about football for an hour, even if it was funny, I'd be like, I wish that wouldn't have happened, or I would have been given a heads up about that. That's great for an audience that wants it but you got to tell people and it, it's something comics talk about a lot about how music is very genre separated and like mm -hmm. no one would say oh let's go out and watch music it's like no we're going to this one specific prog metal show or whatever whereas comedy there's no categories it's like let's see comic and it could be the most filthy thing you've ever imagined or it can be the most clean uh thing and you just don't know going in most of the time people just show up and people if they see one this is why the uh, this is part of the why the business is so hard it, people usually go and see one comedy show ever and if they don't like that they don't go well maybe i'll like the next one that i go to they just are like i guess i don't enjoy live comedy <laughs> <laughs> which no one would do that with music um, or video games for that matter. Um, yeah. Cause it's all your data points. Mm -hmm. So kind of last area in social psych, and I think we'll change decision-making. So um, there's lots of topics in social psych, basically how people behave in groups and in big groups, often people behave badly, um, you know, particularly <laughs> when they have, you know, um, role models for other people um, behaving badly. So I guess, you know, what are the cases where you've seen crowds acting badly? I mean, obviously anything that leads to lowered inhibition, so drinking is an obvious one, um, but things that'll make people more aggressive are things like, you know, is the temper, is it too hot? Is it too crowded? Those things will make people um, um, aggressive. Uh, if it's very dark and they feel anonymous, um, often they'll feel, you know, so what are your experience with poorly performing or poorly behaving groups of individuals? That dark, the darkness thing is a huge one. And um, the comedian Todd Glass always is so particular about set and setting with comedy shows. Like you have to have the lights dim so that people don't see your face. So you feel like you're you're more free to laugh at stuff that you otherwise wouldn't have laughed at if people can see that you're laughing at it. Um, be a little closer to people. I know in the COVID days, who knows when that's coming back, but you want to be kind of squeezed together, not have too much personal space because then you're you're a little more 
tents boxed in, low ceilings, so it can resonate throughout it. But that's poor that's ventilation, basically everything bad for COVID. No, not yeah. poor ventilation. But. <laughs> oh, but with the people behaving in groups, like one thing in particular yeah. is, let's say you've got a heckler and they they shout out something and it lands and you don't have a thing to get them back with if they've like kind of dominated that like i feel like there will be a huge shift in the mood of the room like with uh you know a pack of wolves or something like you never show weakness and like if it's shown that you were you know nipped at by the the other wolf you are no longer the alpha in that situation you're uh the the faith in you kind of drops i feel like would you and agree? similarly there's so um Ramin and I, because we aren't serving warm tea, um, you, you know, we're we're about maybe me more than um, Ramin, but I'm I'm definitely bound to like walk a table like every show. I look at that as an indicator of of being successful. If you don't want to walk everybody, but I've if you are tables, yeah, if you don't walk anybody. It's like a little bit serving warm tea, you know, like it, it might be palatable, but it, it probably won't be memorable. And there's something so so our our style will maybe tend to lend itself to some people are laughing harder because they know other people aren't getting it. So they're like mm. in on it um, and or, or like. Or that was too taboo or something. Like I, I went and saw I went and saw um the Book of Mormon um uh uh in uh, Schenectady, New York, and it was in what? this theater. Yeah. What's it called? The Book of Mormon? No, Schenectady. Uh Schenectady. I, yeah, I know that's wasting time on the podcast, but I mean, I couldn't just listen well, to a word I'm, called Schenectady and like, be like, that's I'm most a place. upset that you made it made me repeat it because I'm probably saying it wrong and I was hoping you were going to let it float right by <laughs> rather than Never. put the pressure Not on. Once. <laughs> Do I have to read out loud too? Uh, no. Um, okay, because I'll go on. You saw Book of Mormon and Schenectady. The, the, the South York. Park musical, it's exceptionally, it, it's, it's pushing boundaries even for my tastes in, I think, really well done ways, but it, it's really... It's really, uh, you know, approaching some real lines. And, but I saw it and like a ton of people were just a ton of attendees were people with theater passes. <laughs> and so it was like a bunch of blue hairs and stuff like that that had no idea what they were walking into. And it made it so much funnier. And you could say so everyone that was there knew what they were getting. Like it was so much funnier because of that. And so that's one side of it. And then the opposite side of the coin is what Ramin and I, when, when I was talking about kind of the cookie cutter headliner in a box, we sometimes call them, or uh, like you just like go and get the cheap applause and you just like get people whipped. It's not necessarily that it's like 
a group of dumb individuals walked into the room. It's that like, as a collective, there are devices you can use to pander to like lower hanging fruit and kind of get people whipped up and excited and do like kind of cheap crowd work stuff that, that um, that's like a bunch of like cheap tricks and, uh, and gets people real, um, uh, uh, real energized, but also like dumbed down at the same time. And then I get on stage and follow that. And it's like, it's a classic example of, of, of it's like exceptionally difficult for people that are unique to follow like really strong, abrasive, hacky comedians. Yeah. It's um, like food pairings. Like there, there is an, an order in which you can serve food, which would not like help the the next course like i'm struggling for examples right now in my head but some things pair well with others and yeah sometimes uh a very strong hack can go up first and then it's just the worst thing that could have prepped you for your set which is why so many comics like are particular about yeah. who they bring on the road as their opener yeah you don't so want to follow right donald fit. trump and it's not because <laughs> you're dumber than him um and and so it's it's uh it there's there's that and then there's um there's also just i i have as i've been doing indie shows more and more i've been taking the other comics out of shows like well i'm doing a show about psychedelics and every time i have an opener in a given city like i just need them to do 10 or 15 minutes what they do everywhere else instead they're sifting through their notebook trying to come up with some dumb drug joke that is like just reminding the audience that i'm not on stage and it's also and it's also priming people to be like oh is this gonna be a bunch of like dumb i got high and lost my car keys kind of show and it just set the wrong tone for me and so i i have an easier time just doing a i like i'd just rather be on stage for another 30 minutes and not have to sit in the back of the room terrified that the that the opener is like ruining everything um for me so there there's that and then there's just like there's the idea of like the customer always being right doesn't hold true at all in comedy. Um, so, so there's like good, good security, not just having like some tough guy there for if someone starts throwing bottles. That's not what happens. I, I, I just mean in terms of some clubs will have like videos ahead of time that are like, Hey, make sure and put your phones away. And, uh, and remember to do these things and keep your table talk down to a minimum. And, and some people have a bouncer, like if a table's getting too loud, which is a much bigger problem than hecklers hecklers happens once in a while, people breaking off, like even liking a joke, but then breaking off and telling their own little story and not realizing that happened how to long. us last week. <laughs> remember the other week? <laughs> exactly that seems to be a much bigger issue and different clubs are better at dealing with it like one of my favorite people is this like um a really likable guy he'll, he'll come by and he's like oh geez hey they're they're recording this for an album right now the, these mics they pick up everything so you know and and then it has it has that table be like oh my gosh we didn't realize whereas if if the if the bouncer 
comes up and is like, hey, can you guys keep it down a little bit? You heard the rules. Uh, and they're like, what? Were we laughing too hard? I guess you're not allowed to laugh at a comedy show. And you're getting like the one star Yelp review. They're only getting louder. There's things like that that happens. And then say that there's a room under normal conditions where, uh, you know, it's a it's a it's a Wednesday night. The, the club packs out on the weekends, but it's a Wednesday night. It's the lighter like hash and stuff out night. And and like uh, it's going to be a quarter capacity. Well, if you just let people sit them seat themselves, they're going to naturally be like, oh, I, I'm going to sit in the back and like comfortably enjoy this show. No one's very few people are going to naturally sit themselves and pack themselves to the front of the room. And even though the show will be better if they do that and empty I, front row is death. You never want to have an empty front row. Empty front row is absolute death. And then additionally, um, there is uh, there is um, the people that volunteer to sit up front are always the last people that you actually <laughs> want sitting up front because they want the whole show to be about that. I hope they tell jokes about us and and um, and that sort of thing. So there's there's a million um, little nuanced subconscious primes like that. Some clubs show like fun videos ahead of time. I usually just show like chill like animal planet stuff with pink floyd playing or something like that ahead of time because it's like it's a little bit like smart and fun and interesting to watch and it's kind of compelling and it's engaging and but it's not like now i'm not following like um you know a bunch of like jackass videos or whatever it's like well i can't follow steve-o putting himself in the porta potty slingshot and now i'm gonna <laughs> tell like <laughs> Stand, uh, like science jokes or whatever. Um, so there's and the, the so shift, much. Yeah, the shift in like, you know, playing the Animal Planet, Pink Floyd, whatever music, and then have people talking amongst themselves. And then you dim the music and then Ooh. dim the light. So it creates like, oh, now it's a sh different world than where we just were. Whereas if there wasn't any music and you just interrupted talking of silence, then it's kind of weird. And then when you're the headliner at so many clubs, some clubs do this right and correct it and get, drop the checks afterwards. But when you're the headliner, you're killing it. It's been a great show. Everyone's had so much fun. And then there's 15 minutes left. You're getting ready for your big closer. This is the grand finale you've been building toward this moment. And then they drop the checks at that time and people start doing math and talking about how they're splitting the bill. And now Pulling they out their phone, <laughs> looking at it with the phone light. And so there's just so many little things that your average person would never never pick up on just like any job i have a brother-in-law that installs windows i was maybe going to get an rv he's like don't do that the windows in those things that cost like seven thousand dollars to replace if you get a little chip in it oh didn't know wouldn't know you know so there's there's just endless things like that with uh with comedy that you would never think of if you're living in an rv like the chipped windows is your least problem <laughs> or it's fine to live in an rv i don't know what the point of that joke was <laughs> So uh, before we discuss 
stereotypes of people who live in RVs. Um, maybe we'll switch to decision-making. Um, I know this is an interest of, of yours, Shane, some of the cognitive biases. Um, you know, these are ones I'd imagine you'd have to get good at basically undoing. They're kind of biases people have. Um, so for instance, sunk cost fallacy, um, you know, people know is, you know, throwing good money after bad. You know, if you had a case where, you know, you think this is funny and you cannot get it to work and you just go after it and go after it and go after it, even after time would say, I should quit this, um, you know, endowment effect, um, you know, you tend to value things more if they belong to you. So I think this is funny because I came up with it, but if I heard someone else say it, eh. um, you know, in the last one, like you mm. talked about is risk aversion. Um, you know, people tend to prefer sure things to risky things. Um, we don't love taking risks. Um, but if you're, you know, somewhere high impact, um, you're somewhere where this could make a big difference in your career. How do you evaluate risk? Do you tell the thing that's low risk and is going to land or the higher risk thing that might bomb or might really shoot you up in the air? Low risk during high stakes. If it's an industry showcase and you're trying to get on, uh, you know, a late night thing or Netflix people like you don't do any new material, not a word of it. I disagree. <laughs> you do all new? Interesting. <laughs> not not all new. I, I go high risk. I, I high always, risk. I, I always do the higher risk stuff. I perform better when I get like a little adrenaline rush. When I did my Comedy Central Presents, I did I did like a few jokes that I had never That's different. That's that's the of. actual taping. I'm talking like the opportunity to get that taping. Oh yeah, well, your, aud your audition versus your performance. Yeah, I mean, I've I I I feel like every time I played it safe on auditions, it hasn't worked out that well for me. I I once was um, um with uh, so I had already done Conan three times or something like that or four times, and um and I'm in uh New York. And they had me host a Conan um, audition show, like how they're going to pick upcoming guests. And the two people that took the biggest risks, one was Rory Scovel, who went on stage, um, did like a Southern character voice, like a ridiculous, effeminate Southern character voice through his whole set without breaking character or telling people he was doing a character or anything else, never alluded to it and closed his set and everything and left without ever changing. That, that wasn't voice. the first time he did that though. Cause I've seen him do that. That's like a, that's a tried and true for him though. Isn't it? Uh, not, not bad. I wasn't then. there for it. Oh, okay. So he was, he was working out the, and he had, stuff he then. hadn't been on late night, you know? Oh, Okay. He had no. and no one in the room knew he was doing a character <laughs> and the booker didn't know he was doing a character. And he was like, and, and, and he wasn't like doing it in a Southern, it was just, yeah. And then the other one was Reggie Watts just blew his time by, I couldn't, I couldn't even believe it. Uh, and, uh, and I was like, well, that's uh, two ways to not get on Conan. <laughs> Those Re Reggie is such an exception because, I mean, I, I opened for Reggie like a string of four shows one time, and I don't think he, he repeated himself once during those four sets. Like, like it yeah. was just off the dome uh, looping things. But uh, I guess, yeah, it's two different philosophies. I, I think of it like, don't they say Floyd Mayweather is 
you know, his fights are boring. I haven't watched it, but I, I hear that he's not taking risk. He's like playing it very safe and it's overall a boring fight as far as fights go, mm-hmm. but it's consistent and that he's not going to take a a risk to have something flashy happen. It's like very guarded and uh, conservative yeah. moves. So when I started, when I was like really hungry as a younger comedian, I used to always take the biggest risks on the most so the the biggest problem with the road is over time you're like well you don't want to alienate people because then you're not going to get booked there again and you now depend on that income so you can't take the same chances you could at an open mic early on i always disregarded all of that early on and i was like nope this is my workshop for like the big stage i don't and and once i stopped doing that it hindered my act a little bit but yeah, I mean, that's, that's, you know, sometimes you just want to like get through a show. And so you're like, ah, these jokes will work. And that's, that's good enough. So that's risk aversion. Let's maybe do some sunk cost stuff for me. And you got any, um, you got any sunk costs? I mean, uh, yeah, my- maybe a, a joke that, a, a joke that worked the first three times and then never worked again. That could yeah. be kind of kind of a sunk cost one because it worked three times and you've already invested yourself. That that has both maybe more of the you came up with it, so it's golden and you'll uh there's there's another thing I wanted to say about risk aversion though, sure, sure. and how the the biggest risk is that first open mic because it's everyone's biggest fear, bigger than death, is public speaking, especially in a stand-up setting. And it takes a huge leap to go from not being a comic at all to signing up for an open mic, doing it and feeling that that new sensation of, oh, this is even worse than I thought it'd be. I didn't anticipate this type of stomach feeling or this type of throat closing up thing. And then after you get past that, it's rare that you ever take that big of a risk again. Like so many mm-hmm. comics never go up and try a fully new set again. And I know I just said that I play it safe a lot of the time, but um yeah it's like that first risk never happens again almost Mm -hmm. you get comfortable in your set and your style and where you do shows and so on yeah and that's you kind of shift gears in your career or whatever i i have many times as a stand-up and ramin has just as just in terms of um the where where he puts his energy um more but also it's like once the the next thing is once you decide to go full time as a comedian, that's another big leap uh, for most people, unless you just like, you, know, you just got like, you're the new Tony Stark in this new <laughs> movie, and so uh, you have no. But that's that's re- usually when you go from um, part time comedian to full time comedian, it's because you're just making just enough now to go full time, and so it's there's a lot of risk there. Um, so I I do I'm glad that you noticed that too about the sunk cost and the endowment in fact uh, effect kind of running um in in uh unison ish or 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 kind of a a bit of a confound there with a lot of things because definitely now I mean the older I get I'm just so not attached to ideas like I used to be. But early on, definitely, like, my jokes were my babies. They were so very precious to me. And, like, screw you. If if you don't, if you don't like it, it doesn't matter. You're hearing it anyway. And, and some uh, people get too 
attached to the ideas to where it's not even the joke that they're possessive of, but the topic and not to throw people under the bus because I think he's a really good comic. And I just thought this was one weird interaction I had with him, but Mm -hmm. I had some kind of joke about, I don't know what it was, bulletproof vests or something like that. And I was opening for Judah Friedlander and he like kind of brought me aside in the green room. He's like, Hey, Hey bud. Um, yeah, just, just, so you know, I've got a, I've got a, a bulletproof vest, uh, joke that's, um, yeah. So you probably, you'd probably don't want to do that one. Um, and then later on, I'm like, I'm listening to it. I'm like, that's, it has nothing to do with it. Like it's the only thing that's similar is the, the, item in it not anything related to it but whatever i don't want to stir and stir the pot of feathers but i thought it was weird that damn you're possessive of even a word he's the world champion of hoarding jokes yeah um (laughs) so judah is great i've opened for him as well um i the next question uh, (laughs) i've opened for him as well i did better next question (laughs) was that an impression of me is that what i (laughs) know that's of judah no judah because judah says like yeah next question uh yeah Uh, i got kicked out of china because i was too good at karate next question (laughs) um so uh, so i i feel like Ramin brings up that awesome. I wonder if, if you find anything interesting about that, Sean. Where that—that's a a very common thing happens, where you think of this grand idea on the way to the club for the show, and you're just so excited, and you, and you try out this joke, and it just crushes. And you call like your girlfriend, and like, "Wow, I just got my new closer for the late night show," and like, you're you're just like, "I got my new favorite sh- joke," and uh, let's see, how do I? Uh, I'll start getting some merch together uh, for for this or whatever. <laughs> That's what I'm talking about. Sure. <laughs> and and then you tell it a few more times, and it just slowly gets a worse and worse reaction, and you find out that. Oh, it wasn't so much the joke as your enthusiasm <laughs> that you brought to the table there, or you just can't replicate that same delivery you had or whatever it is. This happens quite a bit to comics. And now you like stubbornly um, like stick with it because you're like, but it, I know it can work. I've seen it work. Why won't it work anymore? Um so that's and the thing. Sunk cost can be with the order too. Like if your jerk jerk order is in a particular way, and maybe you have, um, you know, a stuff about car engines in the beginning, and then you have another car engine joke in the end, and you're like, oh, I could kind of merge those into one bit, but in your head, you've already like invested time in making the order this way, and you don't want to have uh-huh. to like memorize a new order of jokes. So it's like, no, no, it's fine the way it is. Oh, it costs man. too much. Costs too much time to. Reconfigure the order. Yeah. And it's also, that's the thing that no audience is ever going to appreciate. Like, like, I guess you got to see this show again to see this Christopher Nolan, like (laughs) web of twists and turns and surprise, beautiful ending that I did. Like, why isn't 
Why why didn't I get a standing ovation right now? Don't they understand how I connected this to this to this to this? Yeah. <laughs> Is a thing which also that that um I saw another thing in the document that you sent me Sean that this um I don't know if m- maybe this was something coming up that you're going to ask us about or maybe you decided to ask us other questions but the idea of like kind of blaming the audience for things was that related to was, did we already kind of discuss the topic so we haven't quite hit that i mean yes i mean that would fall under you know cognitive dissonance when you're trying you know it's like you have belief in yourself as someone who's funny or belief in this joke as something that's funny and then you have counter evidence right that basically can't square um and anytime we have things that can't square it makes us uncomfortable right which we call a cognitive dissonance and so you have to relieve it in some way um you either have to think that the fault is the audience or the fault is your joke, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And it's a case where, you know, it seems like learning to resolve cognitive dissonance in the right way would be really important as a comedian because it's very natural to kind of try to preserve self-esteem, to resolve it as in their fault. On the other hand, if you're going to be successful, that's probably not going to be a useful strategy for resolving that particular dissonance because it won't change your behavior. Yeah. Yeah, the... um, the The blaming the or go ahead actually my um my i i took a comedy class when i first started (laughs) i i I did a set first at a club and then they're like well you know it's like a paid club and i I didn't even i didn't know how open mics work or whatever like so you really gotta like work stuff out first ahead of time and whatnot and like nice about it and everything but it's like okay i'll take a 200 dollar comedy class at this tech school or whatever and and uh this this comic uh rich gustus that taught it he had um he had this uh this joke that was like it was something to the effect of um the audience can be just like the most amazing it, it can it can be like a bunch of like cancer researchers or something like that in the audience but if you don't if you don't if they don't laugh at your jokes you're like oh those people suck what's wrong with them and then, <laughs> and, and and uh, uh but but then uh you can like be performing to uh, uh you know just some group of like horrible like uh wall street like hedge hedge fund managers or whatever and if if they like all of your jokes they're like wow they but those people really get me those are some fine people with good values it just reminds me of this quote like to make a little music uh metaphor or analogy or whatever um this quote that says a bad musician blames their instrument. A good musician makes instruments out of everything. So, like, you mm. could say, like, ah, oh, it's my stupid guitar. Like, this fret is flat, blah, blah, That The pickup's not right. But someone that really knows what they're doing, we've all seen homeless, uh, you know, street performers that have, like, the lowest end instrument with just one string on it made out of a rubber band, and they're making something really cool sounding or just mm-hmm. banging on a pot and the same goes with audiences. And I remember one night where everybody was just eating it. Nobody could get through with anything. Not the 10-year veterans, not the 15-year veterans, not the young up-and-comers. Like their A material wasn't working. Their crowd work wasn't working. And then Ron White did a drop-in set. And part of his success could have been his, you know, uh, what is it? You know, his fame. People knew who he was. But I think it was more that his confidence of just addressing it. And he completely turned the room around. It went from the deadest night in the whole, 
year to being the most electric. Everybody's howling. The the mood shifted just through his uh, knowing what to do with that scenario that the rest of us were like kind of holding our heads up and or hands up in the air. Yeah, that's the other you that that's I mean that's part of um mu- much of comedy like a lot of my early stuff was was intentionally building tension in a room and then releasing it having that twist it's like oh okay that was it. i was only uh, pretending to bomb for 50 <laughs> minutes <laughs> and here's the real me I, I did a lot of like uh I kind of played up like a ah shucks Midwesterner stuff, like like a little bit of like the Sarah Silverman kind of like oh, tee hee. Is this me telling like this horribly offensive joke? Um, Jew I, I, diarrhea. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I did a little bit of that. Why like, does it look different? Yeah. <laughs> really early That's on. That's probably not a joke. <laughs> That's probably not. But um, but yeah, it, it depends on depends on how self-aware the comedian is so anyway if if it always helps to like address if the show hasn't been going well or if it's not going well the comedian should be able to like address that and and put some spin on it or whatever and then there's people that have uh, some friends of mine call them laugh ears where like they get on stage they bomb so bad and then they get off stage and like, that was great to like the other comics and everyone saw what they just did. And it's like, what? And then there's, and then there's comedians like Dave Attell will get on stage, absolutely destroy the place and get off stage and be like, God, I suck so bad at everything. I suck. Those midgets jokes are the worst. <laughs> <laughs> The same dick joke. And so, you know, there's there's the less self-aware comics are are going to tend to be the like whip the audience into a frenzy kind of stuff. And then the uh, the more hyper self-aware ones are going to be like the artists who are like way too critical of themselves. So there's there's individual differences there. And then there's and then there's like a case by case basis of there are times when you simply do need to blame the conditions, <laughs> you know, it, if you if you told this joke 20 times and it didn't work ever like, OK, but but if, if this joke works 99 times out of 100 and then and then you're in a showroom and like someone dropped a tray of drinks like right at the punchline and there was like this crowd of assholes and or like the, this table of assholes or whatever happened and like someone had to be thrown out like you have to be like well that one sucked and that wasn't my fault that was just the universe it is like it is like magic in a way where like if you're you're looking away from the magician for a couple of seconds and then you look back and then the trick is completed like you're not going to be impressed as the same as you were watching the whole time the slightest distraction can throw you off the rails mm-hmm. and nothing is worse to an audience than not acknowledging the elephant in the room. If you just keep plowing through with your material and something huge happened that just needs to be addressed for three seconds. Like that's they death. actually love when stuff goes wrong. Like, yeah, you, you can, you can be doing really well on stage and you like 
flubbing and saying the wrong words or whatever is like that's the highlight of the show but, but and part of it's like a release of tension um thing uh to like laughing like that's okay we understand um and, and if it goes too well they think it's a plant like if you are interacting with someone in the audience and the banter is just particularly good for that moment they're like was that is that someone you planted in there to do that also doing well and getting laughs doesn't mean it's good i i learned from my first album uh, like my first album i put a joke on um that never worked in front of any audience and and was like a highlight of my album that like anyone that reviewed it was like check out this joke and it's because it was a joke that made people incredibly like uncomfortable when they're packed into a room but when they're just in a car by themselves and allowed to laugh at whatever they see fit they loved it and um and so there's just so many different factors like it's like the uh you know, you look at Rotten Tomatoes and there's like the critics, I, I'm going to, you know, the critics score really high and the audience score is kind of low. I'm going to be like, okay, well, is this like a, you know, celebration of whatever culturally we're celebrating right now? Or is it because it's like so sophisticated and weird that it was like, uh, because if it's sophisticated and weird, like I'd, I'm not, I'm going to trust that critic score over the audience score where, whereas like, I, if I'm picking something out for my parents to watch or something, I'm going to be like, okay, this has a good audience score and a low critic score. Okay. This is like cookie cutter <laughs> enough to like be a satisfying formulaic show that they're going to like, there'll be some explosions and stuff. Terrific. They're going to like that. Uh, so big part of intro psych is uh, mental health. Um, so we talk about clinical disorders. And so one topic I'd be interested in your thoughts on. So, you know, we spend a lot of time talking about stigmas around mental health and why people don't seek help for mental health. And there are certain professions where that's disproportionately the case. So often, you know, say military personnel or athletes, you know, have this sense of being that involves being strong and they've got this stereotype that having mental health issues is a weakness. Um, so they don't seek mental health. Um, I can imagine the case of comedy, part of oneself is being gregarious and being funny, in which case things like anxiety or depression might be a threat to self. Um, so I guess, you know, what have you seen in kind of the world of comedy with respect to mental health, people seeking help when they need help, failing to seek help when they need help? I think most comics actually do go to a therapist unless they can't afford it. But um, I mean, that's an overgeneralization, but less so than I would assume the the military or athletes. I think there's less of the aggro uh, machismo to it. And this might just be anecdotal because I'm thinking of so many comics that have jokes about talking to their therapist and like, oh, you know, it's bad when your therapist doesn't answer your calls on on your birthday or whatever. That's not mm -hmm. how many times <laughs> did I say a thing and then I have to immediately after be like, that doesn't count. That's not an actual joke that I tried to make <laughs> where. Uh, but I don't know. I, I haven't gone to a, a therapist, but lots of lots of comedians, I feel like and not even a specific to gender or anything. I feel like both men, women, non-binary and genderless people are are going to therapy and in comedy until they run out of uh, credit card funds. Yeah, it's it's a bit of a hot topic right now. And it's it's like, yeah, it, it's it's kind of it's kind of on the other side, the the kind of comic book um, 
uh, or whatever, like more liberal, more comedy savvy, more um, alternative um, kind of side of comedy tends to that. That's the big thing. Like Nanette was um, uh, was was this wildly popular Netflix special recently that was like very vulnerable and like have, think I'm gonna get a quick comedy and here's why and like uh, I was raped and all these things and like this really heavy uh stuff so much so that that there was many people that were like this isn't comedy where are the punchlines those people are now um uh making a name for themselves doing rants about ethnics um but uh <laughs> but they um they uh, uh the so this is like a little more um, maybe psychology 102, but I actually think that there's something really interesting going on, um, which is uh, what what people are liking about a comedy show is a lot of people feel these frustrations in life or whatever and don't have an opportunity to express them. They're, they go from their office job where everyone is expected to be a cheerleader and if you aren't hr is going to come and talk to you to home where you're like watching what you say around the kids or whatever else and um and and then you go to like church or you go to have your like card club and it's a social situation and you don't want to and comedians get to just like say their most vulnerable things, right? And so audience responds to that. But then there's something pretty interesting that happens after that. This is like that 102 um, more more complex. I don't know how you would necessarily test such a thing. How about through some sort of shocking thing where people can hold <laughs> it and it shocks them? That's what psychology is all about, right? Shocking yeah, people when they don't know it. Yeah. <laughs> but the idea of... I like thinking about ideas a lot. I like tracking when I come up with like good jokes and when I don't, what environment that I'm in. Like I often, I often would like arriving to the club early and not sitting in the green room, but sitting in the back of the show and watching people um, come in and like looking at their faces and stuff. And because it, it starts cueing, like uh, I can just imagine myself on stage better and it would help me like figure out the order more. And like, yeah, I think I will try out this new joke. Or like, Oh, this thing I was very excited about in the car. Uh, I'm not sure I have it in me just yet within that. So there's this thing that happens. Um, I think, which is you start, Hey, I'm going to be a stand up comedian. Um, so there's this idea that like standups are all these sad clowns or whatever, but I, I don't think it's that sad clowns necessarily get into comedy. I, I think that you, I think that and clowns have some level of training too. Yeah. <laughs> clowns have a skill. You, you go, I want to be a comedian. What a fun job. All right. I'll take the stand up class. Okay. This is how you, um, build an expectation. This rule of three, you, you set the thing up and then you use the second example to reinforce it. And then you, uh, throw in that dick joke to surprise them at the end. And, um, and you learn those things and you figure out how to get laughs and you start kind of feeling more comfortable on stage. And then one day you have a bad, bad day and you get on stage and you feel comfortable enough to vent or improvise or whatever. And you go like, man, I was 
terrible in the bedroom last night and then I get outside and my neighbor yelled at me for my dog being in his yard or whatever. And, you vent, and it's not even, you don't even have that many jokes. Maybe it's like kind of funny what you're saying, but the audience goes crazy and like the energy of it, you've never felt before. And it's because it's so genuine and, and honest and there's an energy and they can tell that it's real and everyone has a neighbor like that. And, and then there's, so then this speaking of like Pavlovian conditioning that you were trying to avoid, I do think that when then you recognize like, oh, that show went better than nor that was a special kind of energy. What happened there? And like, oh, what other vulnerable little aspects could I share about myself? And then you do start kind of Pavlovian training this like, oh, every time I reveal this dark little secret of mine, I get rewarded for it. And once you start being paid to do that and now your your job is to like expose all of the times that you've been a fuck up in life and then additionally you might also be a little more prone to get yourself into trouble because like if the audience member that's drinking with me tonight does like five shots and is late for work tomorrow morning that's terrible for him if I do a bunch of shots and miss my flight and everything else, that's my next 10 minute bit, you know? So there's, and there's a lot of comics that also are afraid to even become more mentally healthy because they think that they're going to lose their magic power. Then their, their suffering and their uh, imbalance might actually be the source of a lot of their funny and mm -hmm. most of the time, that's probably not true. Sometimes it is like, you know, when Patton Oswalt gets married or something, it's like, oh, I'm not going to be funny anymore because I'm happy and <laughs> happiness is the death of comedy. But back to the mental, I mean, we were talking about mental health yeah. this whole time, but the the stigma of the mental health, I feel like over the last decade, it's been a like kind of steady decline, maybe partially due to like, you know, Robin Williams hung himself, Brody Stevens, uh, Richard Bain, like a lot of every time a, a comic, whether they're super notable or just mid-level notable happens, let's it always I always hear this, you know, narrative of, well, we have to actually seriously start talking about mental health. And this person was having this struggle. And uh, before there, it just wasn't brought up like someone hanging themselves was seen as uh, not a prominent thing that could happen to someone, you know, mm hmm. Yeah, I mean, I I think just I I've seen way way more of it in my what I guess let's see I started comedy in two thousand four. Um, yeah, I guess it's like seventeen years. Um, this month. Uh, and um, I I would say that there's been a pretty big shift in that from the beginning. Comics were always a little more toward the vulnerable side, but I think just culturally the where there's less pull up your bootstrap type stuff. So, so yeah, I don't know. I, I almost, I almost worry it's going the other way where, um, like Ramin said, some comics are worried about like, I can't take care of myself. I'll lose my funny. I, I'll lose I four minutes of material. <laughs> Have you heard uh, Emily Heller's bit about, um, if you're ever considering going to therapy, just tell your friends that you've started going to therapy and watch their reaction. And I thought there was a great truth there where the, none of them are going to be like, no, what do, you, what do you mean? You? Therapy? What are you doing? They're all like, oh, thank God. Mm. <laughs> I no longer have to bear the brunt of this. 
Yeah, I I also think that there's just there were you know there was like the '80s when it was like Sam Kennison does a reel of cocaine and then like uh, Def Leppard throws a thing out the hotel window and that's what being a celebrity is like. And then... the a- '80s pre-AIDS, mid coke '80s excess. Uh... <laughs> period and this is this is like it's been leaning into um i i at least thought it was leaning into the era of like vulnerability and and being more authentic and genuine so my my hope is is that people are going to be addressing mental health stuff more and more even even the bro comedy stuff that irritates me of like red pill stuff is like well, you got to do a bunch of push-ups and be disciplined and stuff. So it's like uh, they're gone are the gone are the days of just celebrating like the cocaine drunken raves and stuff like that all of the time. So I mean, I guess last one because I know we're running on time here. It's one that's near and dear to me, which is uh, human learning. Um, you know, I teach students, and they have a tendency to try to study by reading and rereading textbooks, for instance, right? <laughs> you know, they read the textbook and they read it again, they read it again. Human beings just aren't really built to learn particularly well that way. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about, you know, how you learn to do a, a you know, a show that's 45 minutes an hour where presumably you can't wing the whole thing. You have to have lots of stuff memorized. So, you know, how do you actually go about, you know, doing that? And, you know, what are the things that you actually attempt to have down pat? So, you know, a topic that dovetails in there is, you know, we use more than just spoken words to infer, say, emotion or communication. We use facial expressions, postures, movements. So how much when you're practicing, are you sitting down or, you know, trying to do the full set of behaviors that you're going to be doing? I think it varies per person. So I know these are going to be individual answers. We, we probably don't have complete overlap here, but it's definitely not a, a width before depth thing where if you're doing an hour, it's rare that you you have a skeleton for the whole hour and then decide I'm going to make this hour. For me, at least, it's it's slowly built through through jokes that work and stand the test of time. And then you kind of shed stuff that doesn't work throughout time. And you, you try to get to like 90 minutes and then you cut that hour or you cut 30 minutes out of that hour that is the weakest so that it's just that perfect. And it, it doesn't seem like a lot, but it can take more than a year to to get a good hour, if not more than that, I guess, yeah, you build it very, very slowly based on what works and then arrange it as it goes. So in in doing it, you're building it as you as you perform it. But there's some people that do it differently. Some people write it out and have a big idea of what they want to make. I've done all the things um, when when I started. That was that was exactly my my style of of like just all right, trying out these jokes. Okay, this one worked. All right, these are the funniest things. And then I'll put it together in this like kind of cohesive order. Or like, this is an A joke. This is a B joke. This is an A joke. This is a B joke. And Also, Shane, you've put out, what, five albums? Uh, No, just three. But okay, then you've I've, put I've out toured three with albums shows and stuff too. And a special. But I'm trying yeah. to make the point that you've, you've created, um, I don't know, at least six, seven full hours. And I've, over my stand-up career, I've created two good hours i feel like um yeah so, uh, i mean you, you you have you've you've done more um making of those yeah i i don't 
I don't uh, draw or play instruments <laughs> or any of the <laughs> other things. Um, I uh, I was very prolific when I started. I was known for that. I, I don't always feel that way anymore, but um, uh, I, I don't care about comedy as much as I used to. But I I used to kind of like what means so. But I I did. I used to practice in front of the mirror, and I used to practice in my car all of the time. My first probably three years of doing comedy at least if not more probably first five years and i always thought that rehearsing in front of a mirror was um much better than performing in front of an audience because i thought audiences only made me deviate from the plan and and audiences only screwed up my timing and whereas like what i did in front of the mirror was what would be on on tv whereas like when you're in the elks lodge you have to make adjustments and now you're rushing through the joke and now it comes off as not as confident and and um so i but i always i was we i used to like listen back and time out everything and cut out words and and i make sure there was four jokes in a minute and and I would like rate the level of the jokes there. I had like a very kind of mathematical approach. And then I, and then I started building long form stuff, um, over time. Um, and, and, and that's like, like I'll have a show when COVID's over, I'll have probably multiple shows just ready, ready to go. I'll need to change some things, but they'll be ready to go and they'll be pretty good. Cause I, I have like a sense of how, uh, like what jokes will it takes me time to like ah, i'm still not happy with this before i i'll present it but um but i i feel like i i used to be like well here's a bunch of spaghetti thrown against the wall this seems to work and now i'm like oh this will this will work and then there's some unexpected things that happen and i change it a little bit but um one thing that i think is especially applicable to anybody so I have a science podcast. I think that I know my way around um, uh, science concepts pretty well for the education that I had, which I never went to college. I was like a factory worker. I was wild alcoholic for the longest time. And and I wouldn't say I, I take a lot of classes. I listen to audiobooks and do read, but I wouldn't say I'm the biggest reader in the world. And I would say like more than anything, the, the way the my ability to retain concepts it's not like iq or some like special trick that i'm doing it's just it's just that um i have to frame things in a way that i would say them to an audience when i learn something and when i'm listening to someone talk i'm mindful of like okay well who would be listening to this right now and so i'm not I'm I'm so much more actively engaged in that and then I'm kind of remembering it in my own way and um and so if you're learning something if you're thinking about well how would I teach this to someone else how would I share this um I think that's uh, that's the be you know when you read that gem you're like oh I can't wait to share this at a party or whatever and impress people that those are the things that you're going to understand the best um, and then, cause there's also then incentive, like, you know, you're going to use it. You're not sitting in school. Like, when am I ever going to use this? You're like, I can't wait to use this in a situation. And so that's, that's my, I'd say my number one kind of learning trick. 
Tomo, Fuji, Tomo Fujita says that uh, a teacher is just a really good student. And mm. so you might not just be something, a person that's carrying around all the knowledge and is ready to throw it. But if someone has a question, you you know a way in which to think like a student and be like, oh, interesting. How would we arrive at that conclusion, mm. even though I don't know it right now, but we'll learn it together. And I'm, I guess, more experienced at finding the way to arrive at the answer. Mm-hmm. So I think those are all the ones I had. Um, it's looking like amazing. We solved both comedy and psychology in one hundred minutes. That's mm-hmm. incredible. Uh, yeah, and, and uh, mental health think, has been a really big problem, and it's great to kind of put this behind us and have it fixed now. Yeah, I, I think I, I think we checked off most of the mysteries of life as well mm-hmm. in in that time too. So that was just a very productive. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so, we even got we even fixed racism in the middle somewhere, and I know a lot of people like have been worried about the, heck the rise of an in episode. that. Yeah, so um, we've, we've got that figured out. We've got it all. Probably people gonna be uh, bumping up their Patreon tier <laughs> after this one, feeling guilty for only giving five dollars a month for these gems. Yeah. Um. So. Um. So, so basically, Sean, you're going to have me come into your class. We had this conversation. You're going to pick out what you thought was the interesting ones. Oh, here's the one where Shane goes off for a little too long, and it's not really that interesting. I'll avoid that question. And then and then we'll kind of do this same sort of thing in your class, and I'll take questions from your students, right? Yeah, for sure. I got 375, and you know the ones you know I've got them written down. The ones that you go on a tangent. If I you know need to get coffee or you know pee or something, I can use those <laughs> that yeah, way yeah. too. So, do you Perfect. do live classes or it's still locked down? I I do uh, synchronous online on Zoom. So I have 375 you know boxes with names on it that I teach to uh, <laughs> twice a week. Yeah, my um, brother does that, or not psychology, but he's uh, also a prof. Are they good boxes? Do you like yeah. your boxes mostly? Yeah, my students are great. Um, you know, um, you know, and they're, they're very active in chat, so I'm sure they'll have questions. You know, that they'll throw in chat um, for oh, sure. Cool. Um, so, Fun. you know, um, I think the interaction with them, and you know, they always have questions that it wouldn't have occurred to me to ask. Um, so, um, for better or worse, for sure. Um, that's terrific. Uh, all right. Well, Sean Green, everybody. Is there anything that you wanted to plug, Sean? That, uh, one, if you guys want to go Doom back. You have a new Doom coming out, right? Yeah. <laughs> What's the new video game Doom you're Doom Eternal. On? Yeah, exactly. Uh, you, you have any new papers since the last time you are on or whatever? People maybe check out your website. Uh, um, uh, uh, just how do, how do people find you so they don't find the wrong Sean's? So if, the, if you search for C. Sean Green, you will get me. Um, for okay. sure. Um, and I've even, you know, managed to, to beat out, you know, baseball player, Sean Green. Nice. Um, in that. Whoa, so, um, that's do, science in action. Yeah. You need the C, um, without the C, you know, I'm like 900 Google pages down, but the C <laughs> yeah, will rise yeah. me right to the top there. You get there. We'll see if we can get you to 800, um, <laughs> Google pages after this. Um, yeah. Or just Sean <laughs> and, get, uh, you, you, the number one Sean spot. <laughs> And RameenNazer.com, who you can also hear each week on our podcast, Mind Under Matter, where we're kind of positioning it like, hey, this is uh, Ramin interviews mystics, I interview scientists, and uh, which is like ultimately a little bit of a false dichotomy. We do have different perspectives, but we just have these blended conversations where often I'm looking at Ramin's art 
uh, which are very kind of like Shane meta. thinks the answer is. Yeah, you think the answer is beakers. I think the answer is crystals. Yeah, and then I think, well, what would beakers think about this? And then I give Ramin a lecture about beakers from his crystal <laughs> art, and then he throws some crystals at me, and it's a, it's a wonderful back and forth. So uh, check that out. So uh, thanks, both of you, for joining me on the Here We Are podcast today. And thank you, listeners, for being such wonderful, curious people. And we'll talk with you more next week. All right, everybody. I hope you enjoyed the show next week. Talking with Scott Barry Kaufman about uh, Transcend, the new science of self-actualization, new um, kind of Maslow's 2.0 is kind of the idea. We really just go off on all sorts of weird, funny tangents. Talk a lot about um, being a bad student growing up, and uh, and and Scott has a really compelling story that I that I think is um, as worthwhile to share as as his uh, research, and uh, it's it's something that uh, I I resonated with a lot, and I think a lot of people would um, find a benefit in it. And uh, so, yeah, enjoy that. And I want to, uh, <laughs> I want to plug. So, been changing tiers around and stuff, adding adding new perks, um, and uh, uh, to the Patreon page, Patreon slash Shane Moss. We're now about three quarters of the way to the goal of having all of the editing um, expenses. That's just uh, that's just the editing expenses of of the show, um, nothing else. And uh, and having that just paid through Patreon, we're done so- selling ads on the show, and uh, so getting support from people, and that's been awesome. I like that so much more. I would rather you guys go on and give whatever uh, whatever you can or join a tier and get some of the bonus content on there. Like I just put my uh, the only recording of uh, my Good Trip show, a 97-minute uh, kind of like a bootleg, and you can check that out and entertain, share it with friends. You can download it and have a viewing party or whatever. Um, and, uh, and then... Um, been having a bunch of game nights and stuff like that. But within that, we put a super high, awesome tier um, and and uh, called the Mad Scientist and got a Mad Scientist already. And so that's been awesome. And not only did Mike Ryan uh, subscribe to our high tier on Shane Moss, on the Shane Moss Patreon, but on Mind Under Matter Patreon, the high tier as well. So huge supporter of the show. And I was like, damn, do you have any business? Do you have like a business or anything that you want to plug for? He didn't ask me. I reached out to him because I was thinking that I've been building more of a community. I've been getting to meet people on game nights and we've been doing this like group overshare thing that just kind of skips past the small talk and just gets into talking about life and the things that I like blabbing about. Um, and uh, it's been fun meeting people, interacting with people on Discord and and everything and being more of a part of a community. And I just keep on 
I don't want to offend anyone with this. If you if you go to church, uh, like you know, cool. I don't mean to insult people's uh, beliefs. I tend to be kind of a, a cynical, a slightly judgmental person. And I I don't I don't mean to be a, a, uh, and I think there's value in it and um, everything else. But one of the things, so I just had a I had a really bad relationship with. Uh, with with church and religion and stuff growing up it really alienated me a lot but one of the things especially as an adult that i always did appreciate was that sense of community and bringing people with shared values shared interests together and you know like my dad makes countertops and he'd do like some countertops for the church or whatever and it was a good way and then and you're meeting people and and you know figuring out what they do and their businesses in town. And then you're kind of supporting people within your like kind of value system within um, the community as well. And I just always thought that was really cool. Um, and, and that was the one thing that, uh, that, and, and not that that can't have some downsides um, as well It's all like kind of group think uh, sort of stuff can, but it was, it was the one thing that I think adds so much value and something that i've always thought like why isn't there that for people that don't that aren't into um you know this or that uh religion uh, why why isn't there that for that's what i was trying to do with stand up science is bring like minded people out uh you know in Get to meet one another. I like the peace be with you sort of uh, portion of church. I, th- I always thought that was that was the number one reason um, that it added value to people's lives. So with that, I was just like, hey, do you have like a business or anything that you want to plug? Because I like the idea of like, oh, maybe you go out and support another Patreon's business or whatever. Rather, it's a, it didn't give me a script or I didn't ask for a script. There's no expectations or anything. But he's in, uh, uh, he uh, has a business, if it, boatcarpetoutlet.com. He does marine and boat flooring. And guys, this is just like, yeah, I didn't know this was going to happen when I reached out to. But it's like, you know, when I, you know, when I share with people that if you've ever heard me say that I, uh, I worked in a crouton factory for a while and it always just cracks people up. And it's because it's one of those things in life where it's like, oh, yeah. Someone needs to do that. That's that's a job that you don't hear about that often. And I don't know if you guys have given much thought to boat carpeting, but if you've ever just like taken an hour out of your life and just been like, I didn't, I I quick scanned his site. Yeah, I'm not even telling if you got a boat carpeting company that you already trust you know by all means i'm not telling you to go to boatcarpetoutlet.com but i did <laughs> i did think that uh, i just i just started thinking you should pause think about boat carpeting for a little bit just you know making boat carpeting what boat carpeting's all about and and then just come back here and just see if you just arrived at some of the ideas that I have. Because 
Well, what you'll find out in a hurry is that a lot of people, including yourself, probably have never spent a lot of time thinking about boat carpeting. <laughs> and it is important. There's a there's whole outlets dedicated to it. A lot of people, you go into a carpeting place and you have this selection of carpeting. This is a big thing in a lot of people's lives. They go and they pick out the, what kind of flooring do I want in my home? Oh, okay. Do I want wood? Do I want, hey, what's it feel like? What's the texture? I, I feel like a lot of times with boat carpeting, you go and you, you get the boat and you're just settling on whatever carpeting they have, you know? And I, I think it's one of those aspects that, that, you're not you're thinking about the engine you're thinking about like how big is it what am i using it for and i bet the carpeting gets neglected a lot a lot of times you know carpeting's one of those things that you have the boat for a while and you're like Duh, you know it's just something about the feel of this carpet. Is all boat carpeting like this? Is this? And then you go like you go on someone else's boat because people are. And then you're like, I like this carpeting so much more. And there has to be such a because you're feeling it on your feet, and it's you can't just like so. I had a friend who used to own a houseboat company or his parents did. And so I, and you know, that, but the thing is like, you have, you have carpeting in your house. You're thinking about, you're thinking about what if I drop a glass of wine on, on my carpeting, then what? When you're talking about boat carpeting, you're talking about slopping fish on there. Just wet, fish kids dirty feet everyone's slopping beers and everything all the time it's getting soaking wet there's a whole other like you gotta have you must have to have some sort of like lattice under like i don't know if it's different kinds of fabrics haven't looked into it but that someone has i imagine probably who do you think the first person to put in boat carpeting was like, it's probably, it probably didn't go well. I bet they took household carpet, they threw it in a boat, and you didn't think about it. And because you got to, one, you got to think about the wear and tear of these things. Because most people are going, most people are going for color. You know, I had this, um, I was in this one relationship, this girl was, uh, um, she was super into like redecorate, redecorate. There's always painting projects, all these different, we're always like getting different ornamental things. Uh, April Macy is, we used to have a podcast together, uh, called the double date podcast. We get into fights about this stuff all the time. And I used to do some carpentry and she never understood like that. There's framing behind these walls that you got to like screw things into and stuff like, and, it, and so there's, it's not just aesthetics because that boat carpet, guys, that might, it might look good at first, but if you're not getting the right boat carpeting, you got to imagine boat carpeting 
it's some cheap ass boat carpeting. I bet that boat carpeting. <laughs> I bet that boat carpeting gets trashed in a hurry, you know, and and so I mean, be careful and think about it. Everyone wants. Everyone wants to, oh, is it a sale? How big of a sale is it going to be? How big of an engine am I going to have in this house? But how, but you really got to think, what's this going to feel like? Because if you have a boat, yeah, yeah, there's people, you go out fishing or something like that by yourself, or or you, you bring your kid out fishing or a buddy or something like that. But, but if we're talking boat carpeting, you're entertaining. <laughs> you know, you're having you're having parties. Lots of people are seeing this. Like that's a big part of if you're getting a boat, you're you're showing off that, you know, you you're a successful person who likes to have fun. And you don't want to miss little details. Like you it's the stuff people will never think of cuz you Everyone's, everyone's looking around, checking out the. Oh, they're wondering when they get to steer, <laughs> when they if they get a turn steering the boat, you know, and and getting the uh, getting to drive it a little bit. You're not if you're a rookie, you don't get to back out from the dock. No, no, that's for the professional. That the boat owner does that. That's you you let them back in and back uh, uh, back out of the dock, but. Once you're out in the open, that's what you you go on a boat. That's what you got your eye on the prize for. You're lo- you're also looking for the coolers, for the uh, what are you drinking on wine coolers? You got some Zima on that boat. I feel like you got. I feel like Zima's a real boat kind of a beverage. If Zima, I'm not saying a lot of people drink boats on. Be- I'm just saying that of the Zimas that get drank in the world, a lot of them like. A, a disproportionate amount of Zimas get drank on a boat. So you're thinking about the Zima. You're thinking, when am I going to get to drive this thing? You're you're impressed. You're looking at the big engine, but you notice something. A feel. <laughs> you notice just like a feeling on your on your feet, like a I don't know. There's probably a lot of different fabrics. What do you want on your feet? Like a squishy. Like you don't want it to be like gross, like a sloppy, but you do want that nice, like the bottom of a comfortable shoe. It's like a little imprint, but it's not, you can't have that stuff getting moldy. There's, see, there's all these, there's all these various variables, various variables that you got to consider when thinking about your boat carpet. And that's why, I mean, even even at a top Patreon peer, uh, tier, is this is this anything what uh, some regular ad would be paying me? No, it's not. It's it's not. And no one asked me to do this, but guys, I think that it's just when when someone tells me, "Hey, I'm a fan of science." And, uh, and I, I've done well, I've, I've, I found this obscure podcast, learned a bunch of science things, 
now I have a whole boat carpet empire. He didn't write that, but I imagine that's what Mike Ryan would have written if he would have gave me the whole spiel. I imagine that's that was kind of the origin story. Then you give back, you know, and uh, and so it, if I could, if anything, I'm not telling you, like, I'm not trying to push you into um, getting boat carpet, even if, from the boat carpet outlet dot com even if you know even if you you know you don't have a boat yet now I, I gave this fantastic and you're like well maybe i just want to put boat carpet in my house no that's ridiculous but in the tree house kid has a tree house you what you want to put you want to put some like what uh, some shag carpet in there or something like that that's gonna I mean, your kids are gross enough already. They're already covered in all sorts of germs, everything else. You want some gross-ass carpet up there getting wet, them tracking stuff in everywhere. There's going to be all sorts of wildlife growing in there, not like the fun kind that you can pet, just like microbes, hidden dangers, just in, uh, just because you just cut out some some used carpet somewhere through it in your kid's tree house. No, you got to put that boat carpet in your kid's tree house. I imagine there's a lot of uses for boat carpets other than boats. That's the thing that, that I think they're probably underselling themselves. So what do you got a deck? Maybe you want to carpet your deck. There's an area of your deck that you want to carpet. I don't know. I think at the very least it's worth giving boat carpet some thought. And thinking like, well, what is boat carpet made out of? Then you want to go to boatcarpetoutlet.com and learn more about boat carpet. (laughs) All right, guys. Um, And thank you for supporting me on Patreon. Uh, Thank you, Mike Ryan. You're a gem. Uh, It's awesome. Two tiers. Didn't even... Didn't even ask me to plug boat carpet. I just got to <laughs> plug. Bo- By the way, don't if you get a giant tear like, oh, I wonder if Shane's going to go off in an amazing rant about my business. Well, unlikely. I mean, what are you into? Is it something like boat carpet? Because I can riff about boat carpet all day long, but I don't have any guarantees with your business. I don't know what you're doing. It's probably it's. I don't know. It's probably not as much fodder for comedy. A lot of people come up to you after a show and they'll be like, you got to come and check out my job. You get a lot of material out of that. Doubt it. Probably wouldn't. It's always the people that don't tell you. You got to ask people, what do you do? Oh, I wasn't going to mention I have a boat carpet outlet. That's the person that you always want to talk to. Always ask Always talk to the person who's not offering the information in the room. All right. That's a that's a key lesson from today. Uh, all right, guys. Um, you guys are awesome. Those of you lucky enough <laughs> to listen all the way to the end and hear this ridiculous boat carpet rant. Uh, you guys are awesome. You're my favorites. Thanks so much for all the support. Thanks for listening. Thanks for spreading the word. Thanks for all the wonderful reviews and all that. And we'll talk with you more next week.